Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Apologies as I'm recording this on my computer mic instead of any special microphone. But we have our first episode from the field today, so we hope you enjoy that. And thanks so much for listening. Welcome back, on script biblical world listeners. Uh, we're recording our first episode on location here at Tel Borna, coming to you live from Biblical Libna, overlooking the Nahal Guvrin, surrounding hills of Tel Goded and Marasha, Biblical Etzer and Lakishoff in the distance. Today, I am joined by my good friend. No. 12 years and more. Uh, Itzik Shai, director of the Telburna Archaeological Project. Um, and he's going to tell us about what's happening here at the site. Okay, welcome. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, we are here at Telburna. This is our 12th season of excavations. Uh, we initiated the project in 2009 with a survey season. And since 2010, we are excavating uh, in various um, areas of the site. The main goal when we, when we initiated the project was um, the question of borders in ancient times. The location of this specific site is just in between, in the western border of Judah, in between uh, the Shefelah and the coastal plain. Um, it is located eight kilometers south of Tel Asafi Philistine Gat, the main Philistine entity in this region, on the one hand, and Lakish, which is about nine kilometers south of us, uh, the main Judite administration center in this region. So the, the the location of the site, this is the important, this is the story and the importance of the site, and this is the reason that we choose this uh, specific site. Yeah, and I, I've, like we said, we've been here for 12 years or so, and I can remember in my early 20s being here with my wife, the first area that we excavated, and actually the last area that we've excavated together because we've had lots of kids since then. But this site, if we go back to aerial images of what it looked like back in 2010, or I even remember as a... Uh, very new master's degree student coming up to the top of the tell and and you standing on one of the walls actually that we're sitting on now uh, and talking about how you wanted to come to this site and study borders and you wanted to move beyond uh, Tel Asafi Gath where our doctoral advisor Professor Aaron Mayer has just closed up and so it's still so amazing to think how much uh, has been done in the last 12 seasons and all the different excavation areas that have been excavated and so why don't we why don't we talk about um, just the history of this site in terms of the uh, in terms of what uh, the survey showed and then what the excavations have revealed in terms of let's let's talk about first the, the Bronze Age and then we'll move into the main periods of the Iron Age fortifications here. Okay, so um, as as you mentioned, we started with um, with high resolution survey. And based on this survey, we were able 
to analysis to analyze and to understand the site size of the of the, the site size for each period along the uh, along the history of the site uh, we can say that in the early bronze age this is the first this is the first period that the site was settled probably in the early bronze age two and three uh, but it was a small site uh, in the middle bronze age it a little bit grow grew but not still not uh, a, a huge site and the late bronze age is one of the peaks of the settlement in this site we assume we estimate it around 60 dunams or six hectares uh, in the late bronze age um, and this is this is as i said based only on the surface survey in the excavations we reached um, in order to confirm our results of the late bronze age we, we decided to open a, a, an area in the western terrace uh, just below the summit because based on the surface survey we saw that there should be only late bronze age and we just wanted to confirm this result so we opened there a new area two squares you were the first supervisor, so you may remember. Uh, and just below surface, five centimeters below surface, and directly above the bedrock, and so it's not a multi-periodical area, it's one, one level, uh, we reach a massive late Bronze Age building uh, with a huge courtyard with a lot of uh, ritual and cultic-related uh, uh, um, objects. Uh, like chalices and goblets and figurines and ceramic masks uh, and others, uh, uh, decorated craters, etc. And um, based on this, we are talking about an, 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 a building, a temple, which um, uh, cultic activity uh, rituals took place within. Um, it shed lots of light on, on Canaanite cultic activity with all kinds of influence by Cypriot um, 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 ritual activity um, so it, it's very interesting and um, this is, was a huge surprise for us and this is what uh, I, I can say definitely this is uh, it, it's well dated to the 13th century BC but based on several objects that were discovered both in the survey and also uh, by looters in the past we can say that the site probably was settled already at least in the 14th century BCE uh, and interestingly we don't have any 12th century BCE settlement unlike for example the nearby site of Lachish or uh, Azeka uh, the, the neighborhood uh, in, in this neighborhood yeah, that's that was a, a fun excavation. I think we dug there seven seasons, and I always like to think back on that that first season that I was the very supervisor. And the first few days we dug, we had masks and huge pit toy and all these wonderful things. And we never quite matched that first season in terms of great finds. We 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 really hit X marks the spot. The one or two squares that we had there were really very uh, very rich. Uh, just a comment on the Cypriot nature of the of the finds, uh, especially for our listeners, and we think about the larger context of Canaanite religion and thought. We don't know who the deity was who would have been worshipped in this uh, enclosure. 
we have some hints. We do have several female figurines, including uh, some local stuff, what we call the Revedim plaque figurine. We do have on the crater uh, that uh, it's described a tree of life uh, uh, symbol with ibex eating from it. So there's some that suggest a goddess, but then there's also the fact that we have uh, a lot of material uh, and, and knowledge that Baal was one of the main deities. So those are the two ideas, the goddess who is normally associated with Asherah or Ugarit, the goddess Atarit, and Baal, who's sometimes the consort, or Atarit is sometimes a consort of Baal uh, in these texts, but ultimately uh, we don't know. One thing, though, that's very interesting, the focal point seems to have been a standing stone made from the local chalky limestone, for you geography fans, the Eocene limestone of the hills of the Shvela, and it had a hole drilled right through the center. I think we talked about this earlier on an, uh, on an earlier episode, that this could be an anchor. Um, and we know of anchors... An imitation of anchor. It's not, it, it couldn't be an anchor. Right, exactly, because we're 30 kilometers, 35 kilometers from the nearest, the nearest port. So it's possible that people that came from the coast and people who had the ideas of worship uh, along the coastal areas were using the same type of thought when they built this cultic enclosure and used an anchor to symbolize the worship of the deity. Now, we do know of anchors that are used in the temple of Baal at Ugarit, even on the staircase going up. So that's another possible connection. One last thing we'll say about this. In the biblical text, we know that the site is most likely Libna. Uh, and it's interesting that, okay, we, we won't talk about the historicity of, of uh, what Joshua 10 and Joshua 12 describe, but it's very interesting that Joshua 12 has about 30 cities that are mentioned as places that, that Joshua conquered and killed its king. And there's about 30 or so uh, important late Bronze Age sites, city-states in the area, that line up more or less with the Canaanite uh, system that existed in the 13th century before the collapse of the Canaanite system, that the Bible seems to have had a very good knowledge of where these Canaanite sites were in relation to where New Israelite and Judahite sites were. It lines up very nicely, and this would have been one of those sites, the, the site of Libna. Okay, so now we've talked about the, the Bronze Age stuff, and we're expanding on that in a couple of areas with uh, Debbie Casuto and Marcella Barbosa. Do you want to comment on these new excavation areas some? Yeah, so those two new areas are more or less very close and nearby area B1 where we had this uh, enclosure, cultic enclosure. However, it's, it's in a distance of about 50 meters. Um, we have her, uh, we start to have her, uh, also a massive, um, um, massive constructions and, and buildings. We don't know yet the relationship between those buildings and the enclosure. However, um, based on the ceramic, the dating is, is more or less the same. So that's, that's the goal for this uh, upcoming season, to see what we have in those two areas and how it relates to Area B1. Right, and so we, we, we're, we have, actually I would say it's a bit of a surprise that we have such a big late Bronze Age layer compared to what you would normally think of the Middle Bronze Age being a more significant period. Uh, but we do have this large late Bronze Age layer at the site. We have no real Iron One. Uh, the time period that we have the 
you know, the, the emergence of the Israelites and the Judahites and the Philistines along the coastal plain. And this is one thing uh, here at, at Tel Borna that seems to be quite similar to what we have at Lachish. Okay, at Lachish they have, you know, something in the, the 12th century. Yeah, it's it's a it's a Canaanite it's a Canaanite uh, occupation, but we don't really have much in the way of, of Iron One, and maybe that takes us into the next or, or the bigger goal of this site, thinking about who was here in the early Iron Age, who they might be, and what's their relationship to the big entity of Telesafi Gath, which already in the 12th, 11th, maybe even as early as the 13th century BC, was an important Philistine site, the late 13th century BC, and why this site and how it fits into that overall plan. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about the new discoveries from Area B2 and now Area A1 that show um, this this early 10th, maybe late 11th, uh, but destroyed in the 10th century that we have here. Okay, so in both areas, A1, which is located in the northwest, northeast of the um, uh, summit, and B2, which is located in the northwest of the summit, we have re remains uh, of uh, domestic buildings, well dated to the second half of the 10th century BCE, uh, and both in both cases there is a huge destruction and massive um, remains. Um, smashed complete vessels in situ uh, with the remains of the roof that crashed over the vessels, uh, lots of um, botanical remains, uh, linseeds, uh, uh, lentil, uh, etc. Uh, and we also have, and based on this, we have both relative and absolute chronology, uh, which is, as I said before, well dated to the second half of the 10th century BCE. Uh, it's also important to note that these remains, those remains are pre uh, the construction of the fortification, which means that maybe the people who lived here and uh, um, experienced this destruction, and we, we will talk about by who, um, um, one of the um, results of this destruction was the thought that they should uh, fortify this uh, site. Um, now the question about who lived here, based on the material culture, and, and we are just in the beginning of the analysis, but, but based on the material culture, uh, primarily the the ceramic uh, assemblage, it seems to us that we are in Judah and not Philistia uh, when we are looking for um, uh, parallels for these uh, vessels. We don't see it in in Tel Asafigat. We are going. We we see this uh, in 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 more in the east. So I believe uh, this is part of 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 you know the the Judaite material culture. I'm not sure if we, are, we can talk about Judah as a, as as a, as a political entity, but for sure as Judah as as a, a material culture. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I, I would say over the last ten years. There's been much more evidence um, here in the Shvela showing the late 11th and um, first half of the 10th century. Of course, we have the excavations of Kirby Kiafa, which exposed a city that's precisely, or a fortification fortress that's precisely from this period. And all we really knew before was uh, Lachish, which does not have this nice uh, 10th century, 11th and 10th century level. Uh, recent work has shown that that site's only fortified 
in the 10th century. And so uh, even if we think about the Tell formation of, of Tel Borna, if you ever visited the site or seen it from a distance, everything that you see on top is actually, as we now know, something that was formed uh, after the 10th century, uh, maybe late 10th and 9th and 8th and so on, with the building of this huge fortress, the 70 by 70 meter uh, iron tube fortification. And it's really interesting to think about what the size may have been, because we actually have now evidence of the 10th century and its destruction, both on the east and the west. So it actually may have been a, a slightly bigger site that was not contained by a fortification. And so this is, of course, very interesting when we talk about the discussions of the United Monarchy uh, or the lack thereof and what Shishak's overall goals were, because almost definitely we are in uh, the parts of the kingdom of Judah, right on the uh, the edge of the border. If we want to talk about the Solomonic kingdom, all of those are a major factor in what these excavations tell us. Uh, and so let's, let's maybe, you want to, do you say anything else about uh, old Shishak? Maybe, maybe add two things. One, it seems to us that, uh, that this destruction level, which is well dated to the late, to the second half of the 10th century BC, should be correlated with uh, Shishak campaign. Um, you mentioned uh, um, uh, what was the goal. Clearly, Philistia was not the goal. So, if we have here a destruction by Shishak, so it it supports our understanding that this is part of Judah and not part of of Philistia. So, the the people who lived here are Judahites. Again, I'm not talking about Judah as a political entity, but clearly as Jude, Judah as as, as material culture and, and uh, uh, probably even uh, kin and uh, kin relationships. Great. And so after the 10th century, as you said, we have the fortification of this site. We're still working on when exactly it was constructed. I've been waiting. You've been waiting. All of us have been waiting to find a inner wall or the inner part of a wall with a floor. And I think... Uh, based upon what I've seen in, in B, Area B2 where uh, Aaron Tavger is excavating, that perhaps this year we'll finally have the inside of the fortification and see when it dates to. But really we're at the point now where it can really be only one of, uh, of two periods, the late 10th century or sometime in the mid to early 9th century because it's, it's pretty clear that this uh, fortification, this casemate wall, dates to the Iron Two-Way. As someone who has spent a lot of time in the Iron Two-Way, uh, writing, of course, your dissertation on uh, late Philistine decorated wear um, and other aspects of, of telesophy, can you tell us about uh, a bit about this period and who's the other big bad guy of the late Iron Two-Way that had a big impact on this area and perhaps even here, because we did have a bit of evidence of, uh, of some gentleman coming to the site and doing something here. Okay, so let's start with, I'm not sure who is the bad guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the bad guy from the Bible perspective, yeah. I know. Um, so uh, the Iron Age 2A, um, in the past we, we looked over it as, as, as uh, let's say, one, one unit. Uh, today, after I think uh, two decades of, of lots of uh, papers and, and research, uh, clearly, we can uh, define it in, in, in sub-phases, and we can talk about early and late Iron Age 2A. The early is the 10th century BC, the late is the 9th century BC in general. Uh, 
And here at Tel Burna, we have the whole sequence from the early Iron Age to all the way to the end of the Iron Age. Uh, the advantage is now that we can, you know, we, we can define very, very nicely each subphase and, and using also um, uh, absolute chronology and relative chronology based on the uh, pottery assemblage and the uh, carbon 14 analysis. And I, I'm sure this will add uh, lots of uh, information and data for uh, the research and to understanding uh, all kinds of changes. Interestingly, we can see all kinds of changes here at El Burna uh, on, on town planning and economic and daily life along the, 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 the Iron Age, which we can correlate it with all kinds of geopolitical changes that took place within this region uh, in particular and in the Southern Levant in general. For example, we mentioned the Sheshank campaign, and as I said before, in this period the site was not fortified, and just attacked later we see that they built the fortification. So clearly this is one of the understanding of the people who sit here that this is a, a, a very important uh, control site that you can see all over, both to the east and to the west. So it it's only makes sense to fortify this uh, 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 site, and it became a fortified a fortress with a small town. And this is, as I said before, the the, the significance uh, of this site. Uh, another change that we can see is that, for example, in the seventh century BC, when the and the the fortification, at least. In, in some of the cases went out, went out of use, um, we can see that also the economic uh, foundation of the people who lived here also changed, changed from uh, liquid, mainly um, oil and uh, olive oil and, and uh, grapes, uh, wine, uh, to grains. We have a lot of silos. So this we, we, we can correlate it with the changes that the Assyrian force in this region once Ekron, the Philistine Ekron, which was loyal, or the king of Ekron, was loyal to Sennacherib, he gave him, uh, uh, and Ekron became the main um, olive producer in, in this region, or even in all the Assyrian Empire. So uh, this affected also this small town and uh, its uh, uh, people. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And just, just so we have the name of the king of Ekron, his name is Padi, which is, of course, in English, a nice name, uh, Padi. So the, the, the big bad guy that we talked about is potentially Hazael, king of Aram Damascus in this area, who may have came here. But even if he, even if he didn't, what we see, though, is, is with the foundation of this fortification, this site, doesn't it become a, a, a major part of the defensive system? I, I feel like one of the things I've always respected about uh, what you guys have done, uh, what, what you started with Joe Ziel, who's now excavating in Jerusalem, is not to overestimate 
the size and significance of a site. Uh, we don't think we're Lachish. <laughs> we don't think we're Jerusalem, but we're part of that system. And it's important to understand this as part of the larger fortification system that existed that was, yes, military in function, but also had a, a strong agricultural element that had the same basic function, let's say, from the maybe the late 10th, but certainly in the 9th century, the 8th century, and the 7th century. Yes, there are changes that happen within the walls, um, but more or less, it keeps that function in the fortification. And this is precisely what we actually see reflected very, very nicely in the biblical text. This place is likely biblical Libna, which was mentioned in Joshua chapter 15, verses 42. And it's actually the first town that is mentioned in the so-called Libna district. There are three districts of the Judean Shvelah, Libna uh, district, the Eshtaol district, and the Zenon district. And at least according to my <laughs> suggestions, each of these first towns, Eshtaol, on the uh, sort of the west side of the uh, Soric Valley, next to Beit Shemesh. And we also have, in the case of, of Libna, it's on the west side of the Guvrin Valley. And Zanan, which I think is Telerini, is on the west side of the Lakish Valley. And you can see how each one of these uh, sites and sites around them were small towns or small fortresses that all pointed back to the Hebron Hills and the Jerusalem Hills and the main city among them was Lachish. And if we think about the Nahal Guvrin, uh, where we are now, you have, and you can stand here and see Tel Goded and Eter and Maresha, and it makes sense that the author knew exactly where these sites were. Some of these names are preserved with us until today, and you can see how they were essentially protecting this road uh, that runs right below us, the Nahal Guvrin, into the kingdom of Judah. And so if we just very quickly walk through the biblical text in the ninth century, it mentions... Uh, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 8, that the city of Libna revolted in the days of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. Why it revolted, we're not told. Uh, and what it meant that they revolted, did they revolt to become their own independent uh, kingdom? I'm a Texan, so we like this idea, uh, the Texas Republic, uh, the Libna Republic, or were they revolting to be on the side of Philistia, the Philistine Gath, which at the moment was still a very powerful kingdom, although its, it's doom was was soon in the next 20 years. Uh, it does, the text doesn't tell us, but the fact that we have this kind of odd reference that a Judahite Levitical town would revolt, maybe give us some hints about the border. So that happened, let's say, around 845. And then if we fast forward to the next century in 701 BC, Sennacherib, and the site is clearly Judahite once more by that point, he came and destroyed this site, or was campaigning at least against it, in the biblical text in 2 Kings 19, after he destroyed Lachish. So the Rabshakeh visited Jerusalem and looked for Sennacherib when he came back to go to Lachish, and then he didn't find him, so he came to, to Libna. And so clearly it's a significant enough fortress to be mentioned in uh, the biblical text. And then the last reference we have to it is Hamutal, the wife of uh, Josiah, is from Libna which would relate to the 7th century. And here again, we can point out that we have a very nice 7th century layer, which fits in with the this, the biblical text. Uh, and it's used in, not necessarily in an administrative way, but at least in a way that's useful for the storage of grain for at least the site, and perhaps, you know, areas around it. So it was, it fits very nicely. Now, adding to that, we also have recently found on the margins of uh, of the Survey of Palestine a wadi near 
Shias called Wadi Abu Laban, which seems to preserve the name Libna. And so we think we're perhaps uh, in, a, in a very strong case for this being the site of, of Libna. Now, what I'd like to do, Itzik, now is, is to think about these fortifications in the 8th century, because we both agree that this period of time is not only the major period in Judah's history, uh, where they expand westward and even take over the city that both of us have excavated, Tel Asafigath, in the, in, the, in the mid to late 8th century, but this is the moment where they really reached their peak, and we're now sitting on the, the walls of this, uh, this fortification. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what uh, this was like in the 8th century um, and uh, the significance of, of this site uh, related to the kingdom of Judah at this moment and what it must have been like <laughs> uh, when you saw Sennacherib's armies approaching you after Lachish, this big city, had just fallen. Even I even think maybe from the tower we're standing on, looking out at, at Sennacherib's legions. Uh, uh, you know, that's anachronistic, uh, but you know what I mean. Yeah. So, yeah, as I said before, the, the, the importance of this city is the location. And, and, and when you are standing on the summit, you, you, you see all over. You see to the east, you see to the south, you see to the north, and you see to the west. And clearly, the people who lived here saw what happened in, in Lake Ish, and they saw all the, the Assyrian soldiers all around it. Um, interestingly, about 50 years ago, just across the river, um, a shepherd discovered a nice uh, lamash to plaque. It's a plaque, um, it's a Mesopotamian plaque uh, with, uh, it's like an emulate against, um, against Lamashu who attacked, uh, the, attacked uh, the, the pregnant woman and their uh, um, a child, so probably the the person who were, wore it um, um, was used it to protect his wife, who he left wherever. It's it's uncommon in this region. We don't have such uh, plaques in here. So um, when uh, Kogan published it, he suggested, and I think he's right, that this was part of uh, um, this was belonged to one of uh, um, Sennacherib soldiers that came all over from Lakish to here. So when we started this excavation, it was clear to us that we are going to deal with the destruction of Sennacherib. That that you find it almost in every uh, Iron Age site in in the Shpela. So he, he mentioned that he destroyed 46 uh, towns. So probably Libna will be one of the towns. And as as you said before, it was it is also mentioned in the Bible. So uh, that was by our uh, assumption. Uh, once we started. We have 8th century BCE, we have a large building in, in, in area A2, um, which may be the, building, the, the house of, of Hamutal's uh, grandfather or something like this, um, but we don't see any remains of huge destruction. We can say that we have a destruction here and there in, in several points, but it's not a heavy destruction as we accepted, expected. Um, if you ask me why, uh, I think the answer should be, they saw what's going on and most of the people said, okay, Mr. Sennacherib, we know what you are going to do to us. 
here we are living by by ourselves uh, that's that's my best explanation um but but clearly the site changed after Sennacherib campaign that's that's for sure so is Sennacherib campaign affected what happened here the answer is yes do we have the we have clear is, uh, remains of, of uh, destruction uh, which was done by Sennacherib the answer is no yeah that's that's such a good point and and I think what's so fascinating about Sennacherib's campaign in general is how much information we have. We don't have enough time to go into all of that. But it is interesting if we just think about both the biblical story and the sequence. Lachish is the main city that falls, and we have a depiction of it uh, on the walls. We have the, the defeat of the army, the the soldiers that are executed on the on the walls of Lachish and stretched out. and ex- So if Lachish, which is, again, close to us, something like nine kilometers, you can see, I mean, from the tower that we're standing on, you could see Lachish, you could see the fire of Lachish uh, burning, but not the fire signals. And so someone who would have been uh, living here at Libna, uh, you can imagine that they would have said, enough is enough, let's get up. And maybe some defended. And we just don't know what that would have been like. And, and I think the point you make is, is very important. The site was obviously changed. It's not like we do have a destruction, but maybe a little D. It's it's a it's a it's it's clear that there's an abandonment. Here and there you have some burned remains. Uh and so it, for those of you thinking, well maybe we're just making too much out of it, uh it's clear that something happens in 701, but not exactly what we were expecting when you think of Lachish and Beit Shemesh and these other sites that have been destroyed. And that leads me to uh we have but even if we compare it for example to the destruction of the late tense and BC, this is a completely different kind of destruction. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So we were expecting to find a big destruction by Sennacherib. It turns out Shishak was much more significant, which is always the case that archaeology is quite surprising. One thing I'll mention that uh, even if we think about this well-known story, if you ask someone where Sennacherib went last before he went back to Assyria, most people would tell you Jerusalem. And of course, we have the famous biblical story where an angel goes and destroys 185,000. So just as Pharaoh lost the firstborn, so does uh, Sennacherib. His armies gets visited by the angel of death. But if you read closely in, in 2 Kings 19 or Isaiah 38, it, he never leaves the Shvela. In fact, the Rab Sheka, uh, the, the, the cupbearer, visits him from Jerusalem, and he comes back, and it says, it goes back to Jerusalem, where Hezekiah and Isaiah are talking, and it says he will hear a rumor, and he will be forced to leave and go back to his land. And so whatever happened to Sennacherib, in my opinion, would have happened sometime um, either before or just after uh, his campaign in the area of, of Libna. And so he apparently never visits Jerusalem, which actually fits exactly what he said. He made Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem. And so, uh, what's so what's so fascinating about this area, uh, and now we can talk about the gate, uh, is where we are now, Area G, uh, is that we are at the moment 
of perhaps even the place where the city fell. Uh, and at the, it's at the transition from where this campaign is destroyed. Maybe this is the city number 46 of the 46 cities that he destroys before he heads back to uh, to, to Nineveh and, and Kala and, some, and so on in, in Assyria. So let's talk about now this gate complex, or maybe the gate that we're thinking about here in Area G. Why did we open up this, this area? Okay, first because of you, <laughs> uh, but um, no, it, it was clear to us if, if you have a fortification you should look for a gate. Um, several or three main reasons uh, brought us to the south. First, the south is facing the river which is the main uh, water source for this uh, town. Second, it facing Tulachish, which is the main um, Judaite administration center in this uh, uh, region, but also Tumarisha, so it's also a, a very important uh, town in this region. And third, um, this is the slope from the south is the um, is the nicest nicest uh, way to go um, to the top. And uh, uh, if if you walk like us every day. Uh, from uh, the west, it's it's quite difficult, but from the south, it's it's much easier. So we thought that the the gate should be somewhere in the south, and then we noticed that there is a like a depression uh, in, in this specific location where we are sitting, and based on this, in 2018, 18, you all yeah you opened here. Um, four squares if i remember correctly six squares yeah. and just after um a, a season uh, you reached the the gate and it was uh, you know like uh, <laughs> x marks the spot. Uh, yeah x yeah i i would add i would like to add something about um a Sennacheru campaign we can see in area b2 that they supported and uh, the, the people who lived here, they, they um, um, add all kinds of um, walking along the, uh, along the fortification in order to make it much more uh, thick. Uh, for example, they added a, a, a glacis and we can see that the, the, that the field that they brought is mixed mainly from uh, well dated to the late bronze age so they took something probably from area b1 and put it to support uh, the so they were the first excavators of the site in the 8th century yeah um, but but definitely the people who lived here uh, they prepared themselves to a synagogue campaign yeah, that's that's so fascinating to to think about, and so uh, again, that's what's it's if we if we really get into the scene, you know what I mean, the moments before destruction, and and that's why I think archaeology can be so exciting. It's a lot of work, but when you get those moments of where you have multiple sources in history, the archaeology fits nicely. It's it's so interesting, and so if we come back to the area of Area G. One of our goals uh, that we're working on this season is to see if actually there's a, a, an earlier gate. So we have the 8th century, maybe the 7th century entrance to the city that fell to Sennacherib. We're now hoping to find the original gate 
of uh, of the site that goes with these beautiful fortifications that in some cases are standing up to three meters high thanks to the glossy that was added later uh, before Sennacherib's campaign which preserved uh, this great this great level we have these nice towers uh, on the south and we're hoping to uh, find uh, the, the gate and the gates are always interesting the the forming of them uh, if they had multiple chambers or not and who knows uh, when you're excavating in a gate uh, if in fact Sennacherib <laughs> destroyed the city he might have liked to have bragged about it and and set up a, uh, a stele uh, uh, we don't really know hopefully we'll find something like this maybe also Shushank uh, maybe Shishak well, is, why, why only in Megiddo yeah. and also Nebuchadnezzar anyone we'd be, we'd be happy with uh, and so we're, we're exposing several squares right around the entrance of this earlier gate and we'll see what we find. It's also a time where you could have uh, standing stones and many other types of assemblage. We haven't found anything quite yet, but we will see and most of all we will uh, we will let you know when we find it. So uh, Professor Itzhak Shai of Ariel University and my good friend, uh, thank you for joining us on Onscript Biblical World. Do you have any last things to add? No, no, but you are most welcome to follow us on blog and Facebook and to visit. And thank you, it was really fun. It's a fun thing. So archaeology is fun. Uh, I've had the most fun digging with my good friend Itzik over the last 12 years, and we hope for the next 12 and the next 12 after that, at, uh, maybe not at Borna, but more sites to come. So thank you for joining us. Until next time. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study donate. Until next time, keep digging.